0: Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of School for Disruptors. In this episode, Kimberly and I sit down with Rebecca Arono for another edition of Meet the Disruptor. Rebecca is the powerhouse behind House Cat Presents, a full-on promotion and event company in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And they do some really incredible work in event promotions, specifically through the event Feminist Flea. In this episode, they're gonna talk all about how Feminist Flea got started, what the path was that led them to creating it, and how they envision the future of their work. So let's jump in. What happens when two boss women link
1: up for sisterhood and perspective? The School for Disruptors, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Kimberly McLaughlin and Dr. Sarah Goulish. This dope digital space is dedicated to vulnerable conversations, about self-awareness, self-definition, and of course, all kinds of disruption. Listen as we inspire each
0: other, and we hope, you. Um, I'm just thinking that most people who are listening to this just don't know you. Uh, or maybe they do know you, but are going to learn new things about you. Or they don't know that
1: they know you. Or they
0: don't know that they do. <laughs> Can you just share about your background, um, who you are, where you live, what you find yourself doing now? Just a little biographical overview for our listeners.
2: Cool. This is always such a, such a hard question for me. Um, but my name's Rebecca. Um, I use they/them pronouns. Um, Rebecca Arano is how you pronounce my last name. And um, I grew up in the suburbs of uh, Philly and went to Penn State college and then uh, moved back to Philly in 2018 I think so I've been here for a few years now and um, started doing um, the organizing and production curating uh, work that I do now in college and I was doing that um, in that community but as like an individual person and when I moved to Philly started House Cat, which is what all of the events that I do now, including the Feminist Flee, fall under. um, It's just me as house cat, which sometimes feels weird, but that is like the entity that I operate under and post from on the internet. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I think it's so interesting you say it's just you because in truth, what makes Feminist Flee so as one entity under that umbrella of house Cat so um, noteworthy is that it's actually thousands of people. It's a community of thousands of people, and I and that is so. It's it's it is a lot to think about behind the scenes of these big of, of these big machines. There are sometimes the, you know one person, two people, three people, and there and the the weight, the gravity of what you've created to bring together thousands of people to support women, to support women-owned businesses, and that's women with an X to support local businesses to be thinking about. Um, radically you know this idea of a radical inclusion inclusionary marketplace is is unique. That's one of the things that makes you you makes you so unique in what you've built. Um how long did you were you thinking about Feminist Flea before you actually launched it? Like what was that process of like launching Feminist Flea?
2: Yeah. Um, I would say it's sort of interesting like how things get created uh, but when I was in college, I did sort of like the nugget version of Feminist Flee. I didn't recognize it at the time, but now looking back, I see that connection pretty clearly. Um, my first event that I ever did by myself as like 18 or 19 year old college student, I um, I was going to a lot of shows, DIY shows in State College, and there were just a bunch of dudes booking a bunch of dude bands. And I was like, this sucks. <laughs> like, uh, why i don't want to go to another one of these shows so um i planned this all non-man um benefit show for the local women's resource center there and it had um local artists had like a bunch of stuff that they were selling in the living room of this house and then in the basement um there were a bunch of bands that played throughout the night and then i also had a bunch of people donate clothing and there was a whole clothing uh, sale outside and all the proceeds benefited um, the local women's shelter. And that was my first ever event and it was super successful and like really heartwarming and great. And I did that every year while I was up there and that was like the feminist flea nugget. And when I moved to Philly, um, I just wanted to continue that work, but I knew it couldn't be in that exact same way because state college obviously is very different than here and i was in that community a lot deeper like more deeply entrenched and like centered in that space more held in that space and um as i was thinking about ways to like do still do that work in a new city um i came up with this feminist flea idea which was sort of the merging of that with um punk rock flea market which i grew up going to in high school um the original punk rock flea not the hijacked um now version
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes i've Um, been to
2: that version yeah no captain vintage r5 version (laughs) um but yeah i like wanted to merge i i love punk rock flea but i also um love the idea of having a market that wasn't just a bunch of guys like selling their records and their junk from their basement. So <laughs> <That's
0: real>. <laughs> <laughs> Well I'm really curious to know in the event curation and promotion space, specifically as a musician, I've witnessed firsthand how, how little um, females there are in that space. And so what was that like for you when you were initially trying to break in in such a large market? Um, I always like to cite, like I think that,
2: yes, I like worked really hard to try to make this event successful, but I also had a lot of like structural support already in place that made it like successful off the bat. And so at the time I was working um, under Brian Dilworth, who worked for AEG and so they, are, um, they run a lot of the venues in the city and um, I had access to Underground Arts as a space. I had access to the Bowery mailing lists and all of the expertise in that office that I was working in. And so when I pitched this idea, I had all of this infrastructure already in place to support me, which is huge. And I I have no idea how um, it would have looked if I like came, came into Philly, like not with that, not with those structures in place to support me, give me financial assistance. Um, But that definitely made it easier. Um.
1: I think that somehow, sometimes how disruption works. Like it's like us, like being able to, to uh, assess what our network, existing network is, and then to, to be really strategic about tapping into it. I don't think it's always this thing where it's like, you, you're, you're necessarily building from the ground up in ways that other people um, may or may not perceive. It's like you're just mining your life for how you can do something that sits outside of the lanes that already exist. And, and that's what I'm hearing in like how you did it. You just, you just looked into your, your network and looked into your life and you just shopped and figured out like what can you source from your life to do something different? And the intention for you was clearly, dis- it was about disruption. It was very much so about, about doing that. You knew that from the beginning,
2: yeah Yeah, I think I mean I operated like being in like the music industry space I was operating out of pretty male-dominated spaces I mean everything is a male-dominated space but specifically the music industry um I was in offices of a lot of white men all the time um and I just and and a lot of white men who just were a lot of Whom are great, but uh, a lot or most of the people I was around were just churning out events with no real like mission oriented um, focus or focus on like disrupting the industry that we were in and that just didn't excite me and I always said like if I can't be in the music industry actually doing radical stuff, then I'm not going to do it. And I actually am not doing music industry stuff anymore because I didn't feel like it was possible to do all the radical stuff that I wanted to in, in that space. Um, What is the,
1: no, that makes sense. No, I'm actually wondering now, like when you think about what would that look like, that radical disruption in the music industry space, what would that look like for you based on what you've learned
2: from having had a stint in it? I mean, I think, like, first, I think that, like, Live Nation, AEG, the big corporate stakeholders in the industry just need to be broken up and dismantled. Like, until that happens, until these big corporations that are just profiting off of artists are, like, broken down, I don't think that super radical stuff can happen on that scale i think that it can happen in diy spaces but that's not to me that's not the music industry Um, because a lot of people to survive and to be able to make money in that industry need to be working with these corporations that are just viewing them as another lane towards profit Um, and that was like my biggest learning curve I think I went in really naive being like everyone just loves music and loves creating spaces that feel good for everyone. And then realizing like, Oh, Oh no, this is just another industry where music and like shows are the product and artists are the product and no one is viewing people as real people. And I think until you can get the power back into the hands of the artists, it's just like, I don't know how to, um, make super radical movement in that industry space
0: it's so interesting that you say that um i just had a long discussion with a good friend who he's won he's won multiple grammys um, latin grammys and he was talking about how we look at vanity metrics now and assume success and in the music industry you have or you know corporations like spotify who put out these metrics for artists that bolster you into a feeling good about your reach but you actually make pennies and so this idea that, like you said. It's, it's a you such a, so
1: the game yeah, is Yeah, so it's like up. these
0: for-profit companies that are very much for-profit will still find ways to make the general public think that that isn't true. And so it's not surprising then once we get entrenched in these industries, we all have this moment where it's like the wool's been pulled off of us where we think, oh my goodness, this is actually what we're operating for and...
1: And in that, who gets disenfranchised is the artist. It's but it's the same systems about thinking about workers, you know, how like we've been we've been we've been bought and sold. We bought and have been sold a bag of goods that says that, us not making a fair percent of the of the revenue that we generate of it not coming directly to us is acceptable and and i think and so much of that is like i love that that i've never heard of that the vanity vanity metrics the vanity metrics because i do think that's part of what so many people get caught up in and even in terms of like assuring their own definitions of personal success is like how many followers do you have
0: Mm -hmm. how many how
1: much engagement did you get how many likes did you get and all of that is it's not even about monetization right away it's just about vanity
0: yeah, and his point was basically like, y- you all are championing me because of these metrics, but I've gotten no, no payment from this. Ugh. This has done nothing to help feed my family. And But what I'm also hearing from your story, Rebecca, is that you took a mailing list and you took contacts from these large corporations and you found people who are excited about something different. And that's really cool. So what you're building, it shows that there is a market for it and there are people who want something different.
2: Yeah, and I think there's also, like there are people within these big corporations that really also care. And so when I left there, um, I still have, for example, like my friend Kevin, who still works at Bowery, who's great, who continues to support the flea market even when it's not benefiting him. He's just always down to support in whatever way he can, whether it's like offering me the underground art space for free, which they did for the last market, um, promoing it to the to whatever lists he can manage. So it's finding the people within that space, within those spaces that have similar values, similar um, desires to disrupt those spaces. Um, but yeah, when you have a bunch of corporations run by a bunch of men and set up to continue just elevating white men into places of power. And I mean, as a white person myself, I was only in that space because I was able to take a bunch of unpaid internships for a while, which is how a lot of people get into the music industry. And so it's not surprising that there's a mostly white people, mostly white men, and then white women are people who can, uh, Fit into whatever box they want you in, and have whatever privileges, class privilege, to get into those spaces um, that are then in power, making decisions, and it just like continues to ripple down.
1: I think that that's such an important point to make about the, the idea of unpaid internships or low paid internships. It's like they do set you up for success, but you can only afford them if you already come from privilege. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's like a revolving door where it's like people who are poor and it's the same argument it applies to all kinds of things. Like I think about the argument around college athletes, you know, like should we pay college athletes or not? And it's like well, the only college athletes that are able to easily navigate staying in school are those kids and that many of them are, they're not many of them, right? It's like the kids who play soccer, it's the kids who play tennis, you know, like the kids who come from from poverty are not necessarily able to just live as a college student without having an income. And so it's still about how are we perpetuating these systems of keeping people trapped by giving the best to people who don't actually need it. Yep. (laughs) But I think part of it is the dismantling of that is just like us talking about it, thinking about it, you know, keeping people in conversation, holding space for it to continue to push people to raise the bar about what we accept. Like, you know, like we got to stop accepting so little.
2: Yeah, 100%. I'm
0: thinking about you and the work that you've done as kind of a gatekeeper, right? You're opening a gate to a new way of experiencing um, people's work, artist's livelihood. Can you share any stories about you You know, experiences experiences you've had with either vendors or or people who come into your space that that has really solidified that you should be doing doing the work that you're doing?
2: I think the big thing is like, I really set out to create a community that was like first and foremost. And so every time when, even little things, like when people keep reapplying to be a part of the market, when they were a part of it one time, and then they want to just keep doing it, that makes me feel like, I'm doing something right that the community is making people feel held and supported. Um, so that always feels great. And one thing that also comes to mind is before the pandemic, um, I had a meetup at tattooed mom just to like hang out with people. And I think like, I can't remember how many people came, like 50 to a hundred, like throughout the night were coming and just chatting and drinking together and eating. And it was like, totally magical and made me feel so happy like that was and that's always the feeling with the markets too like as much as the virtual markets have been really exciting like the day of the market when there's just a bunch of people and you can just hear a bunch of talking and energy flowing and see everyone smiling like that is like truly what keeps me doing it and um I also think of like just people that have formed relationships out of the market. Like there were two vendors that from the very, very first feminist flea that I paired together. Cause I just thought like, Oh, there are looks like it like is complementary to each other. And now, now they're friends. They're like very good friends. And, um, someone else from one of the markets like found a, um, sitter for her kids and now, She is like very good friends with this other vendor that she met through the feminist fleet, like things like that, that are actually like people making connections with other people is really, that's it for me. And obviously people being able to make money. Like when people say that they made the most money at this market, um, that also makes me feel like, okay, I'm creating a space where like everyone wants to support each other and people are able to pursue, what they wanna be doing and make money for that in a way that is somewhat trying to subvert capitalism. Like I know I'm not there, I'm still like pushing this market and is selling a lot of stuff, but um, trying to do it in a sustainable anti-capitalistic way. Yeah.
1: That's in my experience. I've been to two, I participated in two a Grant Boulevard a feminist my first time was in Delaware at, in Wilmington at the Queen. Um, and it was that. Oh, was that the first time? I don't know if that was like, that might have. Was that my first time? That I don't, was your
2: first one. Okay. Yeah.
1: It was like, I wonder if that was my first one. and And all those things about the energy and the receptiveness and the sense of community and the. The sense of ethical kind of consumption like knowing who's making who your maker is and knowing that you're supporting something that feeds their soul i mean i think that that's something that the vendors experience but i think that that's something that the shoppers people who come through that they experience too and i remember the first time i talked to you and you you walked by and and i thought of you it's interesting how we perceive people from afar you know where it's just and and that's i'm saying it's not true i i adore you but from afar i was when the first time i met you it was like you were this this energy this force that was really just doing something that was so subversive that it was the subversion of what you were aspiring to in terms of like creating community and safe space kind of pretty much exclusively for women though open to the support of people who don't identify as women that that did and continues to inspire me. I mean, I I think we don't, we have, it's always important that we lean into for me, examples of subversion because that's where that's the change lane.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And also I just want to note too, like for people listening that um, Feminist League highlights women, also trans people, non-binary people, gender non-conforming people, anyone who is marginalized by gender and also like always, always, always prioritizes people at the intersections of different marginalized identities, so specifically Black, Indigenous and people of color, artists, vendors, makers, um, so the space I like really know that the word feminism is very much associated with like white feminism, white liberal feminism, and feminist free space is not that and is trying constantly to be as far away from that and as close to abolitionist radical work as possible.
0: Yeah, I think th- there's so much surrounding language and how we label things. And how we put how we put our message out there in a succinct way that will show what we're about, but can never fully show what we're about because there's so much nuance. But that's the yeah. beauty of community building because people, you're you've created a physical space, but now you've created um, a non-physical space where people are connecting. And so the the people who are bringing others into your space are doing it because they've experienced what you've talked about. Um, And that's pretty cool too that it speaks for itself you know from what kim has been saying and what others say about it
2: thanks i hope so
0: (laughs) try yeah
2: no i I definitely
1: think it speaks for itself and so what has it been like this transition you know i think it's this is such a we all know this it's draining for all of us in different ways and and all of us sit in different levels of perch in terms of protection from or semi-protection or their illusion of protection from the harshness of of surviving this moment in, in in American science in international science but also in American politics um, what has been for you um, something that has really been helpful for you in in making sure that you're protecting feminist flee in the pandemic what is what's been what have you what have you learned what's been like just something you've anchored yourself in that's helped you to just you know you're you're launching another one another virtual event
2: Um, I think it's been tough. Like I, I want, I think for a while I was like, maybe I'll just hold off on feminist flee for a little while. And then realizing that there was the potential to have a space for people to, um, for people who are just like missing having a project. Like I know people have said to me, like it feels so good to just have something to be working towards right now. Um, and for people to be able to make money right now in um, somewhat of a non-conventional way is also huge. And then just giving people something fun to do, um, something different to do. I think those are the big things. And it's been hard to like hold those things down, want to support um, Support businesses, artists who need help. Support different communities that need funds right now. Um, I don't even want to say need help that comes off like super saviory, but who
1: I, I like. Many a times, I think we don't we don't pause to think about what, how, what we said might have been cons- might have been perceived, and just acknowledging like timeout flag on the play that is i might not that might not have come out the
2: way that i meant (laughs) that's always like it's i always have this very concrete vision of what feminist flea is and can be in my head and then to get it from my brain out of my mouth uh can feel really anxiety inducing so i always try to walk walk
0: back Mm um and then Yeah, aside from the pandemic, you know, and giving people a sense of purpose right now, how do you imagine it in the future as you continue moving forward or if things do change in
2: 2021 or
0: 2022
2: or 2022, 23? Uh. Whenever it is, hopefully. Um, I really just love the idea of being in physical space with people I think, um, like I said, as much as the virtual space has been great, it doesn't hit that, that, like, core um, spot for me at least that just feels like it gives me hope. I feel like my – what keeps me going in the world is, like, the hope I get from community, being in community with people and sharing space with people and learning from people, and I really – my big dream is like having somewhat of a, of a permanent space for Lee.
0: I think that's beautiful. Um, do you, is that a, right now where you're at? Is that like a pie in the sky dream where you're, you're like someday I'll tackle that. Or is that something you're actively logistically working through what it would mean?
2: <laughs> um, sort of both. I have been working with my friend. So Back in college, this was like, this has been the only like sort of steady dream or like vision of mine has been to have a community space, like since I can remember. And um, I would like brainstorm about it in college, sort of put it to the side uh, and it always comes back up. And I started thinking about it more deeply the past um, few months and... Um, every time i i just get stuck in the money piece of it all of my hopes and desires for the space are um not really conducive with making money so that's uh that's the the, the hardest part is just taking the time to really flesh out the ideas and find a way to like skate by um making enough profit for it to be sustainable. That's it.
0: I think it's so interesting that you say you're trying to imagine a vi- uh, like you're talking about anti-capitalism. And then you're talking about, can I just create a business that does all these beautiful things and we can just meet our needs? And I feel like we've had that conversation so many times, Kim, like how can our businesses be sustainable? We don't, they don't need to make lots of money. They just need to be able to sustain so that the people that they affect can be positively affected. And then we had another interview um, where we talked to Tess from Triple Bottom Brewing and having a similar sentiment. And I just think how disrupting that even is. You know, when you talk to to people who are talking about the best way to build a business, it's always about profit first and so That's just a beautiful mission to really think about how can we create something that's sustainable but really is for the people. I asked this question once before and I'm curious to ask it to you. Who was Rebecca in high school or even before that? And were there any little inclinations of disruption that foreshadowed what you would be doing as an adult?
2: a funny question that I like
0: um
2: I uh, I had a weird high school experience and just in I mean somewhat not weird in that I was just really depressed which I think a lot of people feel in high school um and I went to a private school that was um That had a dress code that this is like what what comes to mind when you say disruption. It had a dress code that just I hated and didn't make me feel like I could be myself and um, Clothing has always been a really important piece of my identity and I used to find like every loophole I could to the dress code and um, So I would like wear like, a big black dress that covered the entire uniform, and it looked like I was not wearing the uniform, and then I remember one time, like, walking by the um, principal's office, and he walked out, and was like, Rebecca, what are you, like, you're not in dress code, and I just lifted up my whole dress, and, like, showed that I had on the entire uniform, and was like, yes, I am, and just walked away, and they, like, hadn't realized that I technically could wear this big black dress because it counted as like a sweater or a sweatshirt. Um, (laughs) And so I would do stuff like that just to, I guess sort of as like an FU, but also it made me feel more um, safe and comfortable in a space that I didn't feel very safe and comfortable. Um, I spent a lot of time um, actually not in community. I didn't feel like I had a big community in high school at all, so. I think that's where my craving for community comes from is I felt very isolated and some of that was nice. Like I had um, I had a, a photo teacher that was amazing and she just let us have like free reign in the dark room. And so that was like my true safe space was going into the dark room and just printing my photos for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, that was me. I was sort of just like
0: floating around. In your big Not... black dress.
2: Yeah. In my
1: black dress, yeah. Which is such a metaphor.
0: <laughs> I know, I do love that.
1: It's such a metaphor. But I also think it affirms what we talk about we talked about before on this podcast, which is our lives and the, the hurt and the trauma, whether you know, and, and that's a scale, right? That's a spectrum of, of hurt and trauma in terms of when we think about severity. But all of it, while it has a it has the ability to paralyze us, it also I think has the ability to push us into the spaces and places where we can actually be of the most good so and i think that that's the the birth we think about like the total story of this arc of feminist flea and your work in curating events and people and vendors i think all of that is is a response to just you figuring out how to deal with you know where you saw gaps and 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 doing something that was really special and i think you've accomplished that so um thank I want to thank you again for coming on and spending some time with us today because I think that your story of how you built feminist flee and how you've used it as a mechanism for creating disruption in the in the ways that you think mean the most in this moment um needs to be told. People need to know about it, and they need to support it. So where can people find you if they want to discover feminist flee and figure out how they can participate kind of in a more meaningful direct way in the growth and life of feminist flee
2: yeah, so. Right now, everything's online, obviously. So uh, Instagram, uh, you can look up at housecatpresents or feminist underscore flea. Both Instagrams exist. And then uh, feministflea.com or housecatpresents.com has all the info. And also there's Facebook, but I feel like people just use Facebook less now. So I've been more plugging <laughs> Instagram and the website. Yeah. And you can always email me. I love emails.
0: (laughs) And we have one more question for you. Yeah. So we end every episode with a segment called What Do We Tell the Kids About? And then whatever topic we're talking about that day. And we can view kids as the kids we teach in high school, as little kids. So what would you tell kids about disruption?
2: I would say really think about, um, because I think there's so many ways that, to disrupt and things that should be disrupted, but think about the the thing that really drives you. Like what is something that is truly important to you that makes you feel fulfilled and good and would be better um, if the world and the systems in place weren't hindering that thing's growth and disrupt that. You know, that's sort of vague, but that's, I think how I view my work and what I wish, I wish someone had talked to me about disruption when I was little. I think I was disrupting in personal ways that I didn't realize I was doing, but I wasn't looking at the larger systems of the world and the the ways in which we're um, constantly told that we can't create a better world for ourselves.
1: Well thank you again, Rebecca, for joining us today. And mm-hmm. um, we can't wait to I'm Grand Boulevard's participating in the next Feminist Flea, but um and we're we're like we're ride or dies with Feminist Flea. But um <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing you again in person someday and to doing Feminist Flea in person someday. that day will come and it's gonna be amazing.
0: The School for Disruptors is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, produced and edited by us with music from Laura O'Shea. You can catch up with O'Shea on Instagram at It's Pronounced O'Shea, and you can also catch us there at School for Disruptors or send us an email schoolfordisruptors at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.